this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson River? He had done everything there is to do in an airplane. He was even a trainer of other pilots, yet he had never had the opportunity to land an airplane on the Hudson River. He had one shot at greasing that landing and he nailed it. And when it comes to selling your business, you've got one shot. One shot to make sure you punch above your weight when you go to sell your company. One shot to make sure you don't make some of the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they sell their business. That's why I wrote the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for anyone looking to sell their company. You can get it along with some gifts for my listeners at builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio, where we help you punch above your weight class when it comes to selling your business. My name is John Warlow, and today I've got a special guest. His name is Paul Farrell, who has built a bunch of companies. So I looked at his LinkedIn profile, and it starts with the role of Senior Vice President AOL back in the late 1990s. He went on to build five or six different companies, the latest of which is a business called Nehemiah, which was a cybersecurity business, which I'll let him explain to you what they did. What I want you to listen for is the valuation metrics these businesses tend to attract because they have low churn rates. And therefore, that gave Paul the confidence to continue to bleed cash, frankly, because he knew there was a good exit on the horizon. Listen for some of the math around that. Also, the surprising role industry conferences can play in the exit of your company, where you might find potential acquirers, etc. Lots to learn from Paul J. Farrell. Here's Paul. Paul Farrell, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you for having me today. Nehemiah Security does what exactly? What I mean, in layman's terms, because I'm not a techie, explain what this company does. Well, that's a perfect setup for what we do, John, that you're not a techie. And what we figured out is that a bunch of boards across the world didn't understand the cyber speak that they were getting with their cyber reports. And so we decided to approach it more in like an MBA type style of this is your total amount of risks of you know, $281 million of risk has a 61% chance of happening. These are the critical areas. And if you'd like to do something about it, there, here's your capital asset pricing model. Capital asset pricing model is a financial term that just says, I got 10 really good projects to do, but I can only do three or four of them. So which one would you pick? And we actually gave our customers the return. So how much it would reduce risk. So you can invest a million and reduce this by 10, 10%, or you're going to invest a million in this other project and reduce risk only 1%. So if, if I'm Procter and Gamble and I've got a bunch of, a bunch of computers that lace together my supply chain, you would tell me that, Hey, you've, you've got some cyber risks. People could, could hack your back end. And if that were to happen, this would be the financial impact. Correct. And, and you would make that pitch to Procter and Gamble and the IT guys at Procter and Gamble, and they would say, "Okay, yeah, it's help us monetize it." Yeah, and ba- and basically, you st- you know, they have 
thousands of important things, but you start with the top 30 business applications. So one thing, John, that, that I would point out to you and your viewers is it's not about the PC. You can go buy a new PC for what, a couple thousand dollars now. I mean, they're really cheap. It's the information on the PC and sure. it's the systems that the, the critical business systems that the PCs are connected to. And so you could care maybe from a business term, you should care very little about uh, my employee timekeeping system because I can fix that really, really fast or I can replace it really fast or we could just assume everybody worked 40 hours and just pay everybody. But if they, if I'm on Amazon and they break my inventory system and people are earning stuff that's not there and all that, then I have a much more different problem. So in that particular scenario, I would select the inventory system. And so in the big boards, these people and these big companies and small companies uh, across the, you know, where we were working about the world, they know what their top 30 business applications are. And even a small business does. I mean, by the way, you don't immediately start selling enterprises. You start selling a different category. And uh, we got our start in small credit bureaus, you know, who had sophistication and the need, but they didn't have a lot of people to do all these things. And so we helped them out. And that was a launching step for us to sell bigger companies. What is a small credit bureau? Like, what is that? I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, a credit bureau would be, oh God, which one uh, would be like a regional, they're like small regional banks, but they're not really banks. It's where people take money and they save it and they borrow from it. Um, maybe, uh, uh, and um, they could be the farmer's cooperative. Okay. And these, and these folks have, have customer information, they have financial information and you would go in and go, Hey guys, like, you know, you've got some exposure here. If people hack you, this is the financial downside of that. And and you would, you sold them a software to help them monitor and measure that over time. By the way, they had all the financial regulations, the banks and everybody else have, but they don't have all the people, all the money and the size to do it. And by the way, you're not going to start a software firm and sell the biggest company out of the box, unless you know somebody and you're very blessed. You're going to have to find a niche and build on it. And then, and then we kept on building up in what they call FinTech financial technologies to bigger financial institutions. But then that gave us, once we sold some bigger mainstay accounts of financial institutions, we were able to branch into consumer packaged goods and into healthcare. Um, and what were you selling exactly? Like you mentioned it's a SaaS product, but, but so this is, you're billing them on, on an annual basis or a monthly basis? Uh, uh, well, monthly basis. So they're billing a monthly basis and we sell them the platform where they can sign on and check their, check their risk. Now, as we started into, we sold a couple of years later, um, that frequency increased as the, as the sophistication of the system increased. At first, people might check once a week. And they were checking twice a week. And then they increased over time as the sophistication of our software increased. And because every day your risk changes with the new cyber things that come out, like a new attack comes out against uh, medium-sized companies and the uh, fintech area or the agriculture area or anything like that, then you, we would know about them and you could respond to them. And so over time, the frequency of people checking these reports increased. Um, and we were driving more in a strategy basis. Uh, we were driving more to make them daily applicable through a strategy that helped them decide what they're fixing on a daily, daily basis. This sounds like a really capital intensive business to start. Like I get how it would be profitable and a nice moat around it 
over time. But in the first to build the algorithm and actually all the systems, I'd imagine that would cost a lot. How did you finance the, the creation of this company? Well, I was very fortunate to have um, a backer that uh, that we've been successful many times over with. And so once you're successful one or two times, you're playing with company money or the bank. Uh, and we use that uh, money that we had made in previous ones to invest in this. This is an individual or like a private equity group or a VC? Family or? Office, a family, a family office. office. Okay. But you got to understand that they have the same return requirements as, as a VC or anybody else. I mean, they what have... I've heard family offices. What are their return expectations? Like what, what would they hope to get out of investing in your company, like on a, in a return basis? Well, I, I think that they, they're not as, 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 they don't have as much pressure as funds that have to close out every five years and all that and want to show a 20 X or something like that. But to me, I always thought that if I could get them a five to 10 X on what they invested, it was pretty good. And so the people I was, I'm not talking about for every family office, some family offices I know now look for impact. Like, is it, you know, they'll take less money if it's an impact investing opportunity. I've always worked in pure commercial and have have achieved the 10 X or greater kind of uh, hurdle. How do you find a family office to invest in your company? Oh, there's lots of them around. There's people that know them. They're all over the place. There's, you know, God bless America and Canada and places like that because we've had the grounds where entrepreneurials are able to flourish and there's many of them. You can go to conferences to learn about them. Um, Most of the things that, that I would say to every person out there is schedule two networking lunches every week, two or three. And get out there and talk to your uh, a fellow, uh, maybe your accountant, your 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 legal people, other people that you do business with, and just have conversations with them. And you start hearing about things that are happening in your market, or even in your region, or in the country. And you learn. Uh, I think it's really important that you know we get so focused on being successful that I got to sit here at my desk at my company twelve hours a day. But for me, a key component has always been go see people or just pick up the phone. I, I keep a list every week of two or three people that I haven't talked to in, in three months or greater that I want to call. And you can text them now. You can call them. Sure. You're, you know, I just came from a meeting, right? I just came from a meeting to come to talk to you, which was 20 minutes away. And up, uh, I texted the guy earlier and he called me about an opportunity that he wants me to look at with him on a new software firm that they think is going to be smashing. And that just happened 15 minutes. We said, great, we'll get together next week. Send this guy this, that, and we're done. But- so so like, I, I got to ask, when you take investment from an outsider, what does that feel like? Because I've seen your LinkedIn. I mean, yeah. it's impressive. You started off at AOL as a senior vice president and had like a string of four or five successes, one after the other, after the other. So like... Like I get, you've got a incredible pedigree of running and building businesses. When you bring, when you take out, I'm assuming that the family office you work with, you're friendly with the the you know the people yeah, who fund I, the family you're office. Talking about a, now now going out a 40 year relationship, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a trust. I mean, by the way, trust is so important. You know, trust is so important. Um, like, and, and but my return is, I treat it like it's my own money. That's what I was getting at. And, and I wondered if, 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 if it almost feels 
more pressure because now it's not only the money that you stand to risk, but it's also this longstanding relationship. I mean, do, do you feel additional pressure because it's not your money? Of course. Right. I mean, of course you have to, that's being, that's having integrity and taking responsibility. And when you, sh- you know, contracts are contracts, but when you shake a person's hand and you look them in the eye, him or her, and you say, yes, you let your yes be yes. And your no be no. And then you do everything you can to deliver on your promises. So you know? are you, are you ever tempted to just take the pressure off a little bit and just fund it yourself and not get involved in an outside? You know what I mean? Well, you know, a lot of my ideas, I can't fund myself. So, <laughs> I mean, one of the things uh, we could maybe talk about at some other time, John, but we, my wife and I believe in putting back. So 50% of everything we've ever made has gone back into charity. Wow. And uh, we're committed for that. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for it. Not the reasons for the show. We'll talk about other stuff, but maybe we can come back some other time and talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. So, okay. So you're aligned with this, uh, and this 40 year relationship with this family office, you you've got some investment capital to build this business. It's, I mean, I want to get to the exit cause I know it was a five year run and, and you had a, a great exit. I, as you look back over that five-year journey, was there one or two things that you did to take it from a, a, a nascent idea to a valuable company? Like it, we're all about building value. So if it, were there one or two strategic moves you made to make it a valuable business that could be sold effectively? Yeah. And it's never about me. It's always about the hires you make. Mm-hmm. Making those hires are so critical. The people like in the beginning, we're building complex math models, right? To do the, the regressions on all the attacks and all the defenses and all that stuff. And the, the, the people we hired in product management, people we hired in development were so critical because we thought we had a good idea. We built something and then we test it and, and it was good but it wasn't good enough. And we end up rebuilding it again the next month. And it takes a certain psyche of person to do that. And then, you know, and then it's, it's all about the people, the support people, the salespeople. And I would say the most important thing is culture, right? I mean, like getting that culture thing, right. And hiring the right people, you could have the best idea in the world and it fail. You got to have a culture around it for promotes the product. Would it be fair to say that some of the algorithms that you developed were, uh, again, I happen to know your background. You've got yeah. you've got lots of experience in IT, so I say this with tremendous respect to your your experience. W- were some of the models that you were building beyond your ability to run them? Like, were, were the people you were hiring kind of PhD mathematicians? People that were oh yeah, they were yeah. So, yeah. so here's my question because I think this this really relates to a lot of non technical founders, right? Who get involved in a business. Oftentimes, maybe there's some technology involved, or maybe it's a SaaS business, but they feel vulnerable because they don't have the technical chops to know when somebody says that's going to take ten hours to say they call them and say actually it doesn't take ten hours to do that because I've done it myself and it only takes two hours. How do you? What did you, how did, what's the question I'm asking? Um, what's the secret or what was your secret for managing people with such deep technical expertise that they could have pulled a wool over your eyes if, if they wanted to, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. 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 Um, 
I think the lesson that I've learned, and I didn't, I didn't practice this early on, right? So it's a lesson I've learned over the decades is transpa- transparency and vulnerability. Um, you'll have a lot more people following you if you're transparent and vulnerable. And you say, look, I don't know if 10 is enough or not, but I trust you to do your best. And if you can get it done in six, you will. And if it takes 12 to do a good job, you will. And um, vulnerability is a key thing of like, it's like, like, you know, when you're running short on cash, they all know it. <laughs> They're working in your organization. And, and you know, sometimes people want to, like, not talk about the elephant in the room. And what I've learned over time is, and is the valuable lesson of transparency. And you talk about the elephant in the room, luck, we're, we're, we're getting short on cash. And so, you know, we're going to do these things in the short run. We don't want anybody to be worried. It's in the long run. Here's the vision. And we're doing this. We're doing this. Um, and these are our ideas. And by the way, do you guys have any other ideas? And I, I think that came home to roost a, a lot in Nehemiah because of when COVID hit, and all the things that were going on um, were just a perfect storm. And the thing that I learned from that, and it took me about 30 years, John, right, is vulnerability and transparency are key as a, an executive. Now, you're not going to sit down and break down and cry in front of everybody, right, and like throw your hands up, but you got to admit, oh, look, this is what's happening. I am concerned. We're doing all we can. And, you know, I want you guys to know this. You have families. You can make your decision if you want. We hope you all stay. But if you don't, we understand. It sounds like this, left, by the way, it sounds like this actually happened. Can you tell the story of, of, of what impact COVID had on your company? I'd love to know where you were going into COVID in terms of momentum, size of the company, et cetera. And then what, what happened when COVID hit? Okay. So we were probably the size of your typical customer, uh, 25 people counting the 1099s that do part-time work for you, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different different departments and stuff for you. That maybe 21 FTEs, um, paying a payroll, having benefits. I always believed in having good benefits. Uh, we were doing about $100,000 a month, and we had already started a sales process. Um, so To sell the company. To sell the company. So uh, um, a big the big cybersecurity event is an RSA conference. We kind of used that to launch. We knew we wanted to find a, a uh, somebody to buy us. Um, and so we were in the process of that. And of course, it stops. Right? Paul, let, me, let me just ask you, before we go further into COVID, what, it, it sounds very early, uh, 100K in recurring revenue per month. So uh, you can annualize that. What was it that made you want to sell so early in your life cycle? Um, I think it was a, a perfect storm of a bunch of different things in that um, uh, my family office had other priorities. And um, they had told me that if I sold, I had, we had sold a division together the previous year. A division of a division, so a company we acquired, we had sold. Okay. And that company that I sold it to defaulted on the debt. So if they had paid, I would have never sold Nehemiah because they owed me $13 million. Sorry, say that again. Yeah, you lost I, me. I, so the year before in our financial plan with the family office, they said, look, we got some other priorities in the next little bits, sell this company, take the proceeds and put it in Nehemiah because Nehemiah was going to be a very valuable asset. 
And in that process, we made the sale, but then that company I sold it to defaulted on the debt. And so therefore, because uh, other parties were going on, I was funding, I was funding it myself. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, here's the story. I'm, I'm probably like a lot of the guys that are and ladies that are listening to this message. I'm risk kind of tolerant. I'm married to CPA who's not as risk tolerant. I mean, Myers-Briggs were directly opposite. She's up here. I'm down here. I'm up here. She's down here. And that's what makes a beautiful marriage. Right. And hopefully our, our, our children are a mix of both. But the bottom line was when it got up to significant, you know, digits, she's like, honey, come on. You know, you can't fund this forever. And so that was kind of like the perfect storm that pushed us towards there. But also, so, you, go ahead. Yeah, no. So, okay. So the family office, you sell a division, the, the buyer defaults on the loan. So you, what happens in that case? You just don't get your money or you don't, well, you well, get the company you know, back. I mean, I, I, a whole nother show we could do, John, is on forbearance agreements and how to collect your money which is a whole other education I never had before in all my years of buying, acquiring, and selling stuff. Um, you have to set up a plan. And of course, their repayment plan, because it's the middle of COVID, is going to be slowed down dramatically, and it's not going to be enough for us to do what we needed to do. But I will tell you this. During COVID, I did a lot of uh, panel discussions. And on one panel discussion, I was with Adam Vincent, who is Threat Connect CEO, and he heard me say we're trying to sell it. And as soon as, because I knew Adam, and as soon as the conference ended, the you know, like like we did a whole bunch of Zoom meetings and conferences and panel discussions, as soon as that conference ended, Adam picked up the phone and called me and said, "I'm I'm been looking for a risk product. Would you be interested in selling to us?" And uh, that was a blessing that we were on panel together during COVID, and then he called. So, it, I mean, it was a detriment that COVID hit and our sales dropped off significantly. It was a blessing that we were able to get a PPP loan, right? And it was a blessing that um, that Adam and I were on the call together. And so when that all happened, if, you know, the PPP loan, I think was really, really critical and helping us making it through um, okay. and, and calling me up. Okay. So let me see if I, if I get this straight. So the $13 million that you referenced earlier would have been cash that the family office would have freed up and invested in Nehemiah. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. And, in, and because that didn't come to fruition, or it did, but it, they defaulted, yeah. you were personally financing the burn rate of Nehemiah, you and your right. wife, effectively. Yeah. And your wife is like, time out, buddy. <laughs> this is a big nut. And- you know, because yeah. if I'm doing the math, you got 25 people and hundred grand in recurring revenue, you're probably still burning at that point. Right. Like, which is normal for yeah, yeah. stage. You're company. burning a little bit more than a hundred thousand a month. So yeah. you can, you can just do the math yourself. Those are big checks to write it. Hey, go John, tell your wife tonight, you're going to start writing thousand dollar checks for the next six or seven, eight months. It, it doesn't take long before, uh, before a CPA calls, uh, <laughs> calls a pause on, on things. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So that's all helpful for context. So why, what, one of the other questions I have though, is, you know, some companies went to zero in the early parts of COVID rights, service businesses, restaurants, et cetera. Other companies, Zoom comes to mind, 
skyrocketed because everybody was remote. I'm surprised in a way that COVID had such a negative effect. What was it about COVID that made your business slow down? Because I would have thought more apps, well, cybersecurity would have been a big deal. It was a slow down our sales process, right? Because okay. you're, you're, you're building a SaaS firm. You, you're, those sales have got to come in every quarter. So you make your plans. So you fund more developers because you're doing more sophisticated things. And our recurring revenue base was strong. Our retention was strong, right? People were re-signing up. They loved our software. In fact, it became more relevant because people wanted to know what their overall risk was in the new posture of COVID. But it slowed down that pipeline of, of, um, of you know, Deal flow, of new, like just, sales, new sales coming in. What would a typical sales cycle have? How long would a typical sales well, cycle have been? Nine months longer for multinational yeah. companies, right? Um, it, it, it's, you know, you could spend two months in the contract process sure, and, and that slowed it down. And so that was one of the other, one of the other considerations. Got it. You mentioned you were at a conference revealing, sharing that you were thinking of selling. Um, was that a calculated risk? Because there is some downside about being so public about the, the, you know, intention to sell. What, what were your thoughts around being kind of fairly public about the, the plans well, to sell? Um, it's maybe a, um, it's not like we had a sign up. Um, we weren't doing anything on the showroom floor. We had a suite in a hotel and we had a few select people in and we were showing them a product and talking about it. And it was very beneficial um, because uh, it's our, our business and every business is one-on-one. If you're you talk to your other senior people on a one-on-one basis. They get to, get to know you and trust you. Uh, in fact, I, we're going to get to it probably later on, but I think it's the number one key in buying and selling something for me is the relationship with that lady or man on the other side of the table. Um, and uh, can you resolve something quickly? Like, cause when you sell or buy, it's going to hit the wall, right? <laughs> I mean, sure. it's going to be something that always happens, even in the best of situations, a, te- a tenuous situation comes up then you got to be able to call that other person up. You got to be able to resolve it in five minutes and you got to be able to move on with both of you keeping the long-term perspective. I want to buy that firm. They want to sell it or I'm selling this and they want to buy it. And um, if you don't have that, then the whole thing falls apart because every time you hit one of these little bumps in the road, it's a big, long negotiation and all that. You've got to have that personal relationship on the other side to help it go smoothly, it's at least at our level, right? I mean, sure. it might be different for multi-billion dollars or $100 million firms with thousands of employees, but at our level, you know, 20 plus employees, selling it to another guy who might have, or unless I say guy, cause it was Adam, you know, a hundred something out employees, whatever he had, I, have, I don't know what it was. It's still a personal relationship. Sure. So you're at the RSA conference. RSA is at the, yeah. 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 Uh, you're getting your kind of prep stuff ready for that. What did you think it might be worth? Like, did you have a sense in terms of multiple range uh, yeah, that you I- thought, you know, based upon in the industry, you can you know what cybersecurity firms get. Um, you know, eight to ten, maybe more if they were bigger. I mean, a five million dollar firm gets a much bigger multiple than a one point two million dollar firm. A three million dollar firm, as you grow in size, you get bigger multiples. Um, and so, you know, you're looking at probably eight to ten um, at that size uh, maybe times four. ARR. Times AR. 
Yeah, uh, ARR for folks who's you know, recovering. Ten, ten, maybe 10 to 12. It depends upon who your buyer is and if it's strategic or not, or if it's a bolt-on or whatever happens. Um, but there's always a lot of things that play into that, um, uh, play into that equation. Uh, you know, the, the guys and gals that are out that are thinking about this, it's never a binary yes or no. It's 12 or 15 binaries put together of some yeses and some nos. And you sit down and you have, in your mind, you're doing what they call a Ben Franklin, you know, the pluses and the minuses. And, sure. and when you put those all together, then you get the, okay, it's ready to go or not. Uh, and then it became, then it, as you sell a company, it's also very fluid, right? Because what you thought was minuses becomes a plus, what you thought was a plus becomes a minus because somebody doesn't like it. And you just so- got to keep it, keep it going. Okay, so we're so you go to the conference, uh, you're on the panel. Adam calls you up and like, hey, if you want to sell, you fit hand in glove with what we're doing at Threat Connect. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. What was the next step? I mean, did did he come to you with some sort of letter of intent or indication of well, interest, or did you meet? Or yeah, well, for, you know, first of all, I mean, typically the process is you sign an NDA. We had an NDA. Is that what you guys did? Yeah, and we had already knew that we were selling, so we had a data room set up, right? Mm-hmm. So we could give them access to it, and then we could start the process of demoing their key employees and walking down all the things that has to happen. There's there's lots of things that have to happen. And so for the folks that are listening that want to sell something, there's a whole process you got to go through. You got to get all your contracts in one place. You got to get all your employment agreements in one place. You got to make sure as as best as you can, they're all consistent. You got to know like all your contracts. Did you, um, what, did you have to give up something special for that first big multinational firm you sold? And you got to be able to talk about it. And all this has got to be in a logical sequence where somebody comes in and and, you know, what I always like to say is, is you tell people about something in advance of what they're happening. Right. And so, you know, I would say we have all these contracts. They're all going to be the same. They have this particular clause in it that we like. Um, this one had we had to do something different to get it sold. So this one says this and this is what you're going to want to know about it. And as you know more about your business and they go in there and they look at it and said, oh, Paul did say that in this bigger contract that had this thing in it. Or they, he did say they were all consistent with these particular clauses, and they were. That that gives people reassurance. Back to your transparency. This is a lesson I learned early on, even when I was a sales manager for startups. If everybody in the firm answers the objections the same way, people feel comfortable. Like when they walk in to look at you to, you know, they're going to buy software from you. What's the feel of the organization? And if they go out of the meeting and they go to the the restroom and come back and they run into somebody and they talk to them and they ask about something. And that person answers the same way they're in the room. They get comfortable with you. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's builds this trust because you're just being transparent and honest and everybody knows the answers to the questions. And so what I would always purport if I was advising anybody out there is consistency and transparency are keys. Sounds like it. What was your, communication to your 20 or so employees at this stage, you're, you're under NDA with Threat Connect and Adam. You know, some might say, boy, if, if, if my employees, some of which are very, you know, very expensive data modelers and mathematicians and so forth, hard to recruit, know I'm thinking of selling, they're going to get their LinkedIn profile brushed up and start shopping their resume. Did, did you worry about 
the fact that they would maybe leave if, if not at sold? all, not at all, because you have to connect what you're doing to their, to their future. So and how did you Adam do that? Was, well, first of all, uh, Adam was a perfect fit for us because he, he was already in threat intelligence. We relied a lot on threat intelligence. He had a uh, workflow program, a SOAR, right? Um, as, a, as a technical name of the marketplace, but basically it's workflow that we were looking at because we wanted to communicate going farther and farther down on the organization. So his organization fit hand in glove with where were we going and it got us there faster. And, and as I know today, and uh, I don't think any of the employees that went over have left. None. Got it. So for um, you, you, you grafted this opportunity for them and so showed them what it could mean for their careers. And for the software. I mean, people start believing in the software and the software's mission. And can the software's mission be furthered by this combination or not? And are you selling to somebody that's going to take care of them in the same cultural ways that you took care of them? And those were yes, yes, because here we are. It was a year Friday. By the way, last Friday, it was a year. Congratulations. Um, and nobody left. And That's amazing. So Threat Connect is the, is the ultimate acquirer. They have, as I understand it, a, a sort of full suite of cybersecurity solutions. Oh, gosh, I sound like, a, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah, sound like I'm doing a webinar for the company. Yeah, yeah they're going to they're gonna call you up for a sales job. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but effectively, if I'm a bank or a big CPG company or whatever, and I want to I make sure that I don't get hacked and I'm cyber secure, et cetera, I might hire this company and they'd have solutions. And your solution, this threat assessment, this financial assessment piece fit into that solution. So yeah, it, it was, helped them. Yeah. So they were going to sell your product to their existing customers. Correct. And new customers. And that's and what makes use, it valuable to them. And they would use your product to go as a thin edge in the wedge sort of idea to get into a new customer and then sell around yeah. the other products. Yeah. Cause we were, we were risk management and risk management was, was very popular. It was an emerging category in Gartner. We were a Gartner cool vendor, which is a whole nother story of how, you know, we got that as a young company. But to be clear, I'm just going back to threat for a second, threat connect. Was it, I know both, uh, both of those strategic reasons were probably appealing to them. The idea of selling your product to their customers and then winning new customers through you. Do you, did you get a sense of which was a higher priority for them? I think that whenever, and I, so I don't know what, Adam and his team were thinking about, but I know when I've done this in the past, yeah, it's the one thing is, can I sell it to my existing base? Cause that's the easier sale to make, right. Than a new sale. Yeah. And yeah. so this is, isn't an easy upgrade is always a question you have to ask yourself. So you'd be looking at it. Is it an easy upgrade? First of all, and then, you and know, then, then there's great, you know, now this whole thing, risk management was a burgeoning, burgeoning area. Gartner's tracking it. We're a Gartner cool vendor. Then it, it brings all that other stuff to the sales process because they were doing well by themselves before we were, we were sold. Right? Sounds like it. Yeah. 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 And so you're under NDA, you're going through the demos. At what point did, did you reveal your numbers to Adam and the team? Well, I mean, once again, I mean, when Adam asked me up front, I told him exactly what my sales were, how many people I have. They're going to find about some of the stuff anyways, and it's yeah. almost public information, right? So up front, I disclosed how big we were, what our revenue were. Um, you could ask me what the burn rate was, and I would know it exactly at that day. Um, I kind of you know, waved my hand at it recently because I don't really remember specifically what it was. But it just, 
you know, you got to give them information to help them make an intelligent decision about what they're doing. And if you play your cards close to your chest, well, you're losing on transparency and trust. Right. I mean, there's some things you're not going to divulge. Like until we had NDA, I wasn't going to tell about our secret sauce about how we did, you know, how we actually made all this work because there was challenges along the way. We had to, we had to hurdle like computational explosion because these, this thing we're doing was so big. We had to figure out a way not to have the programs bust because they were were doing too much. Um, There were all kinds of stuff along the way we had to figure out. And that is, you know, trade secrets, and, and patent kind of stuff. And you can hold that off to later on because they understand that. Um, and those are really, really important meetings. But the bottom line is on the, on the, what I would call the surface stuff, just be honest. This is our sales and our employees. This is what we're doing. This is, you know, what our pipeline looks like, that kind of stuff. Years ago, I did an interview for the show with a guy named James Murphy, who created a product called Viviscal, which was um, like hair, a balding solution for women, for women who had the hair loss effectively. And it worked unlike a lot of the quack stuff that, that they sold. It actually worked for women because the reason for women's uh, thinning hair tends to be uh, for different reasons. Anyway, it worked and it was a Marine protein and it was, it was a, it was a very highly guarded secret because it was very, very proprietary. And he went through the entire sales process. He was pitched, he was selling to uh, consumer packaged goods companies like Procter and Gamble and, yeah. and those folks. And ultimately he sold it to C and D. I think it was $165 million. It was a Good big, big, very spectacular sale. He never shared the marine protein formula until the $165 million had been wired to his bank account. Yeah. So even under NDA, he that little secret wasn't going until the, the check cleared. So but 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 in your case, some of the the kind of secret sauce you you did feel comfortable sharing with Adam prior to the check clearing your yeah, account. Yeah, I think it was a requirement for myself. But also I will tell you this. Um, a recipe in one person's hands and a recipe in another person's hands don't always turn out the same way. Hmm, right. Very good point. So yeah. that's one way to, that's one way to look at it is that they're also that, um, Mr. French would say the je sais quoi to it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded by my friend uh, who went through the Cordon Bleu chef school. He says, there's a difference between what does he say? A chef and a cook. Yep. And I'm like, there what's the difference? And, and like, uh, and, and why not like the, the level of precision effectively is, is, and, and yeah. what the outcome would be. Yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. So at what point does Adam present you with a letter of intent? I, I think it was in a, I mean, I would guess, uh, well, upfront, they, they have an intent to purchase, but when we finally found the number, it was a couple of weeks into the process. You got to get it out there really fast. Cause you don't want to waste a lot of their sure. time or our time. Um, and, so, and did that come with most of these LOIs come with like a no shop clause? So you can't sort of negotiate with yeah, anybody else. I'm assuming you have and, one of those. and we expected that and we were comfortable signing it with that on there in there. Did you, did you consider shopping the company to others uh, at this stage when you had the kind of bite from Adam, did you think, okay, maybe I'll go and get it two or three other. Well, we, we're, we're running a process and there okay. were two or three other bidders at the time. And he's, he was the bid we decided to take. What was it about that bid that put it over the line for you? 
Uh, well, relationship with Adam, like I already talked about that. It's got to be, yeah. I think it was that the price was fair based upon all the other variables, right? The timeline was fair. In other words, we're not going to spend months in contracts. Um, and so it aligned in a lot of those, you know, when we said there's 20 or 30 binary things that check the yes in many of those boxes. And, we, and that's why we went for it. And, and I don't know if you can share this, so please just tell me you can't if you can't. But was it in that sort of eight to 10 range? Or? I can't. I can't tell you. Can't that, to that's one thing that, that we all, you know, they'll never like publicize out there. And, like, yeah, no, totally. But everybody, it. you know, everything happens in ranges, right? I mean, you know, but I can't confirm or, or what range it finally ended it. Yeah. And was it? This maybe maybe you could uh, answer of the other offers that you received. Was it the sort of like was it sort of in the middle, a lot higher, a lot lower, or sort of in the range of whatever what everybody else was sort of thinking? I guess what I'm getting. I, I, I guess it was. I would say that it was higher than some, but um, as I remember, maybe not the highest. Okay. Okay. So not there the were some intangible pieces, like the the how fast he could close his word, the, the relationship you had financing of the organization. Did they have the cash on hand or were they looking to go raise it? You know, those, those are, are all things. things you have to think about. Yeah. And, and what about the terms? Um, I know a lot of these deals, they're sort of back end weighted where you've got a long earn out to deal with. Like, did, what, what, what can you tell us about the terms? Well, um, the terms were very reasonable. Um, uh, um, it was probably the shortest time I was asked to stick around to help advise. <laughs> and um, now that I've done it once, um, next time I'm going to do the same thing over and over again. I like the short term in and out. Um, but one of the, your audience is going to find out that you, you don't make all the rules anymore once you sell. This has happened to me, as you said, three or four times. And I go to an organization, I don't make the rules. And you're like, I want, we did, maybe we would have done something different. Or whatever. That's not the case anymore. You don't have even the right to say, unless they ask you what your opinion is. And you can get frustrated, but it's, it's, it's do it and move on. I think it's really good. Well, I think stick every- around long enough that make sure the transition is smooth because whether you're being paid or not, that's your duty to make sure they get the, the value out of what they spent. But move on fast. Go on to your next one. Well, I think everybody would love to move on fast, yeah, well. but it's not quite as easy. And most of our listeners uh, would would at least be asked to stay on for some sort of earnout. Average length is three years. Yeah, if there's services, if there's services firm, that's that's going to happen. Software, we're a yeah. little bit different, right? Uh, I'm not the main developer. Um, yeah, uh, but even with software, we hear, you know we hear sometimes there's like a a private equity company will come in buy sixty percent and ask the founder or CEO to roll some equity and and can stay on as CEO for. Oh yeah, that's a completely different situation I was talking about. Where you know, here's a new CEO coming in that knows what he's doing. It's a seasoned professional. We in the case of us. Adam, at, at yeah, you don't need two yeah. of us around, right? Yeah. 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 He, yeah. He knew what he was doing. So, so he had you come in when, as an advisor, and again, if I'm getting too nosy, just say, can't tell you, but as an advisor, was that a role where you were like on salary or more like as a consultant or were you just a well, shareholder? Uh, whatever your arrangement is, it is. And what you got to do is figure out what the cadence is. And a lot of times it's, Hey, this came up today. What do you think? Or what, what, okay. what were you thinking when this happened? Give me the background. So you're not leading a team at this stage. You're not hitting like hitting sales numbers. You're you're not literally on call advisor. to advise. 
I'm an advisor helping some sales situations because I was a lot involved in the sales situations. Um, that kind of stuff helped, tra- you know, talk to the new sales leadership about, you know, why, why people buy this product and all that. It was purely a ri- advisor role for me. And I've, I've been on you longer, as I said, times this was the shortest one. And I, I think it was the best strategy. How uh, long did you stay on as an advisor for? Like how many months or years? I don't know, a very short time. Um, uh, I don't know if I can even talk about that. Okay. doesn't. Yeah. Let's say less than a quarter. Okay. Okay. I was going to say less than a year. So that's fine. So no, no, less than a quarter. Fairly short. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about, um, tell me about the relationship with the family office. And again, I'm asking out of genuine curiosity. My understanding is that most family offices offices are relatively passive investors. They're not like, Paul, how's it going today? Like they're not after you for KPIs every day. They're, they're sort of a little bit more like hands off. What was your experience through? Like, are you, are you keeping them abreast of the various offers that you've got? You know, they trusted me just to say, this is the best offer and here's what we're doing. Okay. Remember, I've been I've been working with them for a long time since 2005. At the time, 2006. So I was a known entity. They had seen successes from me before. I was building on a relationship of trust and transparency. Uh, and you know, the whole the whole thing is that I would recommend whether it's a VC, a family office, anybody, just transparency. Here's what's going on. Hey, we got a problem recently. Uh, you know, we put out a release and it didn't work as we thought it was going to work. And we're, we're doing this to fix it. And this is what we're doing. So it doesn't happen again. And those are the things that you, you know, don't, don't try to just give them a rosy picture. Cause then when things aren't rosy, they're like, what, you know? Yeah. Like I, I, I would have liked to have known. Help me understand a family office. So, so you, Again, we don't have to talk specifically about the one you're involved in, but I'd, I'd be curious just generally the structure. So you've got, as I understand it, it's usually an entrepreneur who sold a company for a truckload of money, or they've inherited a truckload of money in some capacity, but they've got a big you know, pool of capital. And they often hire a CPA or you know, a, a CFO type of person to run their family office for them. And that person in addition to other things, places capital. So they'll put some money into, into debt instruments, some money into uh, the stock market. And oftentimes they'll put some money into privately held businesses. And when they, they do the latter, they are the custodian of that money effectively. And they're, they're a CFO and they're, they're basically going to say, okay, I'm going to take 10% of this portfolio. I'm going to put it into some more high risk, high return things. So the person running the family office is not the rich entrepreneur. It's the, the, the kind of usually professional manager who is a CFO. Have I got that about right? Or um, like- yeah, for most, most fam, uh, most of the family offices that I know, the people who made the money in their siblings are, or, and, or children are involved. They're involved. Yeah, they're involved. I don't have the, you know, I mean, maybe in, in other circumstances, it's a couple arms like removed, but no, you, in fact, the, my, the, the leader of this family office was probably one of the best people I know in running a software firm. 
So okay, I, you know, so I Jones for times I could get together and and uh, learn right and and um, and absorb the knowledge base. Um, and so that's that's was my case, maybe a little bit different. Um, but I wanted to to get input. I wanted to understand what was going on. And I think, you know, it's one of the things I've learned too that I will say to your audience is, um, you know, what made you successful 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago probably is not going to make you successful today. And so you have to pray for transforming your mind that you can get your mind around the new realities and be really truthful with yourself. I mean, the truthful is, oh, what I did there doesn't work or this person's better at running that than I am. Um, and I think those are like some realities that, especially after we've you know, clearly been blessed, have been successful many times over. And a lot of the lessons I have learned still work for me today, but some don't. Like I told you, like the new paradigm for me is a lot more transparent and a lot more vulnerable. And I think that that aligns more with today's world and where today's world's going. And the, also the young people that are coming up in today's world, they know it. If you're not, you're hiding something. Right. What if you, let's take the last, say, 12 months as a lens. What have you changed your mind about in the last 12 months as it relates to entrepreneurship and building businesses? Hmm. I think you got to be ready for anything, right? I mean, clearly the, the COVID was one thing, but also now Delta uh, variant people are, I see, I see small businesses all over making, I call them audibles. It happen every day. Like I love football, right? And so the quarterback gets up and the line of scrimmage, he looks around, looks at the defense. Right? So we look at our competitors. I look at our products. We understand that, okay, today's audible is going to be this, and we're going to run it up the middle. Tomorrow we're going to be running around the end. And but I that's think, that, that hasn't changed in 40 years, has it? Like, yeah, I no, that hasn't changed. But also the I think that the, the, the defense has, though, right? The, okay. the environment has. The, the environment has never been as volatile as it is right now. And so, you know, like, you know, and how to think differently about it, you know, like um, I sit on the board of uh, an anti-trafficking organization and they were going to have a completely online dinner this year. And I said, no, things are changed. Let's do a small group of people and we'll have it on location and then also have everybody join from Zoom. And I'm working, I'm working with that with my local church as well to be able to integrate the online and offline environments. Things are changing like that in the world. Like, hey, we don't expect, I mean, people just aren't, I mean, the data shows that people aren't going to church consistently every Sunday. What they'll do now is they'll go two Sundays a month and two Sundays a month they'll attend online because that's the way, you know, you're, you have a young family, you know, things come up. Sure, and so sure. You have new realities. And so you got to get your mind around these new realities. One of the things that COVID has helped with is I, Listen, yesterday I spent an hour listening to uh, a cybersecurity podcast, or actually a broadcast. It was a, uh, they had four or five famous chief information security officers, and they were talking about how they think about different things in cybersecurity. I've been attending those. It's just like that lunch stuff that I was telling you about earlier, or those getting out. I think you have more opportunity now than ever to attend some of these free free things and attend them. And, and, and even if you're doing email, cause you have to multitask cause you don't have time, you pick something up. And, and if you keep on picking things up and keep on transforming your mind and learning and learning, uh, look, I I'm 62 and I think I got a couple, two or three more successes left in me. 
what uh, was the what was the reaction of the your contact at the family office when you know you you effectively the check cleared the bank i, I don't know how you want to describe that but yeah. you know you handed the check over to them i'm sure it wasn't a physical check but what was their reaction it's always positive i mean you got to celebrate with people i mean you mourn with people you celebrate with people um so, and and, and it, it, it's uh it's uh how did you do that was there a dinner like i'd like to know seriously well, like um, when when the deal closed did was they a, call you or you call them or what happened oh i i sent an i sent an email because um there was a health thing going on at the time somebody wasn't feeling right and so i didn't have the chance of it i mean normally um like a month after we would do something like go fishing or do something to celebrate about yeah. it and strategize on the next one. But in this particular case, there were some health concerns. And so I wasn't able to do it, but we have done it three or four times over. So I'll go back to the previous times. It's, yeah. it's always good to celebrate, right? It's always good to say, Hey, this is a job well done. Um, and you know, after a while too, and maybe it's, after you've done this, after you've been in the end zone a couple more times, it's great but then you get the desire to get in the end zone again. So you immediately sure. start the next morning thinking about, okay, what's going to be the next thing I'm going to do and how am I going to do it? And how am I going to get that ball in the end zone again? Because you get the, you, you get, you get the, the emotion, the flavor for it, the zeal. Sure. Super Bowl champions have the trophy. Did, did you, do you have a physical trophy? I'm, I'm wondering if you have something physical that okay, so I, is a momentum. I, I have to make a confession to everybody out there. So you, you've asked the right question. So during, right before COVID, um, Lynn and I, uh, my wife, we sold our home and we moved into two bed, um, 1800 square foot, two bad timing. 19 floors up from five acres and a pool and everything else you can imagine, workout room, theater, all that stuff. Um, and, you know, to me, I used to have all the tombstones. So tombstones are uh, like more over technology that I built, uh, tra- helped transfer them with a bunch of really, really great people and sold to LexisNexis. And, you know, Lex- LexisNexis had like 94 people on the deal team. We didn't have maybe 70 in our whole organization. Yeah. Um, I used to have all those tombstones and I got rid of every ball. I, my desk has nothing on it uh, right now, except I hold a lot of that stuff in my heart. Right. And I know it. Um, I don't need something to remind me of it. I can still tell you stories of, of how the memorial deal went down and who was involved. And Tom, the guy from Lexus Nexus, that was a, such a great acquirer for us. Um, I, and I think I've been transforming myself more and I don't keep trinkets around because uh, we love our new lifestyle. It's unburdened. And we, we really, we really like, so, you know, if I buy like a new t-shirt, uh, a t-shirt's got to go out and I don't have any grandchildren yet. And I'm not going to get a house and, and pool and all that until I get grandchildren. So I got a few you, years to wait. <laughs> you're the opposite of the, the trophy story. You're like jettisoning everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it's more about the people. I, and that's why I write people's names down. So I told you so. I'll like I'm due this afternoon to call a former employee that at the one year mark reached out to me, and he always been a, a great person. And he said, "Hey, today I know it's a one year mark. I just want to say thank you. Really happy here at Threat Connect, and uh, give me a call next week." So he's on my list to call today. Did your employees at Nehemiah participate financially in the acquisition by Threat Connect? Um, we, I would say, yes, 
I took care of my employees. I've always took care of my employees, whether they've had a formal plan or not. I take some of the deal proceeds and uh, not everybody, but key employees that have been there all along. I took care of them. How do you decide, you know, you sound like a very philanthropic person, mission driven. 50% is incredible. I think a lot of people listening to this are conflicted when it comes to sharing deal proceeds with their employees, because I think they're mindful that those employees brought them to the dance. They'd never be there without them. Having said that, those employees didn't risk their capital. They weren't the ones that you know, worked all the weekends and, and, and did the things. I mean, you were burning $100,000 a month to the point where your wife was like, hello. So like you were like seriously risking a lot. And I guess a lot of people are conflicted about this this issue of how much and with whom to share when it comes to the sale of their company. What guidance would you give them trying to figure out what is maybe morally right, if that makes any sense? Well, I mean, every situation is different. The way I look at it is um, there's a double blessing in it. You're blessed with it and you can bless other people with it. And Hey, they did spend weekends. I mean, you, I mean, they did a lot of my employees worked when there was a problem, they worked nights and weekends to get it fixed. They were there. Um, they, they stuck by you, right. When you were transparent and said, Hey, we're going to be sold. Um, and it's, as I said, I wasn't able to, you know, do all employees. Um, but, um, the key ones certainly, um, were able to do something for is and that a hard conversation with the family office? Because they're the family no, offices that aren't no, playing. Uh, not really. Because you know what? I can go to, I mean, uh, if I want I mean, let's say hypothetically, if I didn't have contractual constraint, I could go tomorrow, put a shingle out there and call a lot of those people and they would be back in about 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, and, it, and it's, it's a other stuff, though, John, it's not just the money in the end. It's are you concerned about them personally? I mean, I know their wives, their um, husbands, their children's names. Um, uh, you know, we at, at, we celebrated every birthday. We would get whatever cake you wanted. We would have a once a month. We would if we had three birthdays, we'd have three cakes, <laughs> uh, an ice cream cake, a coconut cream, and something else, whatever. But you yeah, know, I went to work at EMI. I came back ten pounds heavier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Celebrating birthdays. Uh, if somebody died, even if it was a grandmother, we'd send flowers because you're in the person. I mean, and more than ever, you're in a people business. You cannot get that product out the door. You cannot build software. You cannot provide those services without those people. Um, I'm not saying you know you give everything you got away. But you have to recognize the ones that went, uh, that were there through the thick and thin and went, uh, went over for you. And that's what we choose to do. And, so, I've, done it, and I've done it, um, you know, in other the sales when I've been CEO, where I've been able to control it. I've put something in that's not just the Nehemiah one, it's the one before that. And I've given something back to all the employees. Is 10% a right number? I don't know. It depends. You know what? It, it, that is a decision because you got to look at the at the end of the day. All right. So uh, what is it? 
uh, Kenny, what's his name? The, you know, you, no one to pull them, no one to show them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you Kenny Rogers. Was that? To the end of the day. And so you got to right. get to the end of the day and you, you got to see, okay, here's what I got. Here's what my cost was and what I got left over. And I would say at the end of the day, make that decision because you don't know to the end of the day. Um, and uh, that's what happened with us. Now, I kind of re- projected, I had a spreadsheet where I knew you know, where I plugged in and I had percentages and all that based on what I thought. So it's not like it was a final guess in the end. I had planned out it all along. What was your favorite reaction that you received from a Nehemiah employee when you told them you'd sold the company? I will, I will go to some more of my favorite reactions ever at Nehemiah or at Nehemiah. Cause remember it's during COVID. So I'm not seeing them, right. Those other happy. Yeah. It's over zoom or whatever. Yeah. Um, I remember recognizing a, a, a particular employee of mine uh, was going above and beyond and we needed to give her a raise and, and a very personable person. And I remember uh, out of the blue, unexpectedly, I walked up and gave her a letter that said, you have a raise. And out of the blue, she gave me a hug. Out of the blue. And it, was, it wasn't like I got hugs every day or anything like that. But I really appreciated that person, and I really appreciated what she did. Um, I've gotten letters that I've, I've kept. There's, there's a couple that I have kept. Um, even from starting employees, just, uh, you know, maybe they were interned with us, and they left, and they said, you know, Thank you for showing me. I mean, I think that's one other thing that I would encourage all your viewers. Hire, inter- hire interns, pay them $20 an hour because they're working for you and they deserve pay for it. And somebody gave me a hand up when I was in college to get, you know, internships and stuff like that or jobs to go to college, you know, pay for college and then move on. I encourage you all to do it. But I've gotten some fantastic notes. Uh, I got a text message Christmas Day from an employee. Uh, another person um, who said Merry Christmas and thank you so much. And those are, those are, man, I'll keep them forever because they're, they're just, that's what it's all about, right? It's about people. It's not about you being successful or the company being successful. It's that, did you, did you, all your employees, did you treat them right? And I've got some, uh, some instances where people have affirmed that I have treated them right. And that's what I, that's what I treasure the most. Let's leave it there. Uh, Paul, where, where can people find you if they want to connect and, and, uh, and reach out in any way? Are, are you, do you accept LinkedIn uh, connections? Yeah, LinkedIn's or fine. I, I love LinkedIn. I accept all requests. I get a ton because I'm open. I get a ton of, you know, uh, linked to me. And I always say, I'll, I'll connect you today, but don't try to sell me anything. I'm happy, <laughs> I, I'm happy to mentor people. I mentor for free. Um, you know, you call up and ask my advice. I'll give it to you. Um, um, you know, there are some longer term relationships, uh, but in my, my role, I'm able to help people. And that's what I like to do, um, Fantastic. across the board. And we'll put, uh, your LinkedIn profile in the show notes so that people connect to that. Um, yeah, just and, go I, to and I go there every couple of days and accept them. And, um, awesome. if there's a longer note, sometimes you have to wait a week or two to like, get around to reading the whole note, but, the uh, the short, I saw you want to connect to you, or I have a question and I'll, you know, give somebody an email to send me a calendar invite to something like that. Great stuff. Well, Paul, thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you, John. It's been great talking to you. Appreciate it. God bless you. 
Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.